This second week of Advent, I invite you to be turning to Luke chapter 1, as we will be picking up in the middle of what is traditionally called the Magnificat, taken from the first line of a song of Mary that she is singing here, a literal translation would say, My soul magnifies the Lord. And as we covered the first five verses of it last week, it was really intensely personal for Mary. She made a lot of references to her and her soul and her spirit, rejoicing in God, her Savior, and God has looked at her and God has favored her, and all generations are going to call her blessed, and God's done great things for her, all very personal stuff, and Hopefully, as I brought out as well, things that can be very personal for all of us. We should make much of God. We should rejoice in Him. And we should know that God has shown favor on the humble wherever they may be. And through Him, Ephesians says, we are all blessed. But as we progress in this song, you will see that Mary moves from personal ramifications into more global world ramifications in these last five verses. But even as we cover the scope of the world and the global ramifications that God has, I believe you will hear very intensely personal and familiar ways that God still interacts with us. I invite you to stand one more time in honor of reading and hearing the Word of God. If you're able to stand, we will read from the beginning of Mary's song, but we will be picking up the study really in Luke 151. But let's read all of this together. Let me try to move that. There we go. We read, and Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his slave. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, because the Mighty One has done great things for me, and his name is holy, and his mercy is from generation to to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this song out of the mouth of Mary you have kept for the generations to read for a reason. We believe that every word in the scriptures is breathed out by you. So we pray that you would use these words by your spirit to speak to our hearts today. Father, I am incapable, nor should I try to meet every need, but you are more than able, and you are willing to meet every need that people might have today. So I invite you to say what it is that you desire. I invite you to push me out of the way. I invite you to please grow us for your name's sake. Draw us closer to you. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. A couple of weeks ago, my my friend, Pastor Kevin Bingaman, 
had his first pastor's notes in our local paper. He wrote something along the lines of that it seems as we get older, many of us try to find that Christmas magic, for lack of better terms, that we had as kids. And that really resonated with me. Um, And I've been thinking about it. I remember kind of a big family discussion that my family had around the December of 96 or 97 or so. It was a big discussion because my parents were talking about reserving Christmas Eve for just our household. My mom's side of the family lives in town, lived in town at that point in time, and and most Christmases that we had been uh, having in Kamei since we moved to Kamei in August of 94, it really felt like from about 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve to the night on the 25th of Christmas, minus the few hours we'd sleep in our own house that was had over at my mom's uh, parents' place. But one year it was a big discussion at dinner time. My parents were talking about it and talking about it with me and my three siblings. And they said, what would you think of just us six having Christmas Eve just for us as a family? I don't think it was out of selfishness or wanting to isolate ourselves, but more of my dad and mom trying to make memories just for us, for something special. And we'd still do Christmas Day with my mom's family. So we decided as a family to do that, to reserve Christmas Eve just for us six. And uh, I don't know if you can see the picture. I'm that goofy guy right there. But uh, there's one Christmas Eve we had, and... Christmas Eves are undoubtedly the most treasured and most easily accessible, because as you get older, they're hard to access memories, right? And most enjoyable memories I have in my mind growing up. I think I can almost tell you down to the minute what we did on some Christmas Eves, because it was so special. It really grew us closer together as a family. And it wasn't what was on the dinner menu. (laughs) It wasn't the music we listened to, or the Christmas Eve services we had at Valley View Nazarene. It it wasn't reading Luke 2 together in the Bible as a family. It wasn't reading that awful tale the night before Christmas um, together. It wasn't wasn't, um, me and my three siblings packing into one bedroom in the basement so we couldn't sleep all night. It was who I did all these things with. It was my family together. It was warm and scenic outside and wholesome and cozy. And But if I hadn't done it with five people whom I love, cherish, and treasure, it wouldn't have been unmemorable at best. Since then, I think this is what adds to, for at least for me, sometimes the bitter sweetness I kind of feel around this time of year because those years are over, those years can't be relived, and we six are now spread out across the states. And I bring up this story because whenever we show up in the middle of Mary's song that we're studying, we show up really her singing about a father and his family. A father who has had the proverbial discussion within himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and has made a decision that really ensures for eternity, if you catch my illustration, an eternity of what I will call Christmas Eve. (laughs) Heaven is going to be, in my mind and in my own words, I think an eternity of Christmas Eve memories on steroids. That's probably why I didn't write the Bible. But it starts with our God acting on his own for our behalf. 
Mary sings about God. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. The, the ESV, a more literal translation, says he has shown strength with his arm. And I merely mentioned this so you note the difference that the HCSB seems to be suggesting a singular event. He has done a mighty deed. Whereas a more literal rendering seems to say generally, as in this could be a reference to many deeds of God, he's shown strength with his arm. But the emphatic mention of who is at work, notice that, God. God has done a mighty deed. God has shown strength with his arm. God alone is the one who is at work. If it is not painstakingly obvious to anyone, God did not confer, nor did he partner with anyone about his plans when he brought Jesus into the world. Galatians 4.4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. And in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, Paul declares, In him we have redemption through his blood. Listen to all the times it's referring to God. So in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, and all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The plans were set forth in Christ in the fullness of time. It is in him that we have redemption through his blood, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, all according to his purpose his will to unite all things in him. God did not confer nor partner with anyone about Christ. John 10:18 records from the lips of Jesus, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Notice where all of the authority lies in the hands of Jesus and in the command from the Father. God alone is acting. God alone is the one who is sending Christ into the world to save the world, not because the world demanded it, but it is because solely out of the love of the Father. So Jesus tells us in that memorable verse of John 3.16, when it comes to Christ's entrance in the world, all the world was doing at that moment was waiting in eager expectation. But it was God alone who was at work. He showed up to Mary. He brought himself into the world. Salvation is of the Lord. What is quite astonishing, if you think about it, though, is the response of the people. That this one act, namely Christ in the human history that is born out of the love of the Father, authorized and enacted under the sole authority of Jesus, it is God alone acting that would produce the kind of responses that we see in the scripture and today. 
Consider it this way. Imagine if I came to you and said, I have this gift for you. It's free. I really want you to have it. Imagine if your response to me was, I'm going to kill you. (laughs) Well, we'd say that escalated kind of quickly. But you and I know that Jesus is the most controversial, polarizing figure ever. Mary sings on in, in Matthew, or excuse me, Luke 1, 51 through 52. Excuse me. He has done a mighty deed with his arms, and he has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones. Scattered and toppled in these verses were in are in its original form the aorist tense. It's the Greek. You get to learn a new word today if you don't know what that means. Aorist is a tense that is past but has no reference to its completion. So, for example, if I told you the fire started last Wednesday, that word started could either mean that the fire finished Friday or the fire is still going. You don't know. Either case is possible until you get another sentence out of my mouth. So it is with scattered and toppled here, it is likely an ongoing effect of when the world meets God. God, through Jesus, has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. You see, Jesus is killing pride with humility. Jesus is killing pride with humility. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. When it comes to the nativity story, I'm reminded of what we're told over in Matthew 2. We're told that pagan wise men who are bent on following nothing but a star have traveled for miles in search of a baby. And when Herod hears of this, Matthew 2, 3 says... When the king heard this, he was deeply disturbed. Why was Herod deeply disturbed? Because I believe that Herod believed the wise men at their word. When they said, the top here, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I believe Herod believed that these wise men came to find the one who was, quote, born king. Not Herod, who was appointed king and has been trying to defend his crown ever since. Herod believed that the wise men were in search of someone to worship. And the one born king, deserving of worship, had in fact came. And unlike King Herod in the palace in Jerusalem, who does not deserve our worship, there lay the one born king in a humble feeding trough, in swaddling clothes. In humility, our king comes. And his humility scatters the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Herod is disturbed. He is so disturbed that Matthew 2 would go on to tell us in verse 16, he gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem, who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. (coughs) Jesus was born king. Wise men out of nowhere come to worship him, and Herod is enraged because he's a little king. And he's got his little kingdom, and he wants some presents too. 
And instead of knowing his place, and instead of joining the human race and worship of the king of kings, he sets himself up against God. He's not moved to worship, but to fury. He's not moved to humility, but to pride, to disturbance by a little poor baby in a trough. Like I said, isn't it so odd that a free gift for the world who comes in humility, who comes born out of love to save the world, and Herod and many after him are not moved to rejoicing. They're moved to fear, to anger, to resentment. They're saying to the God who has spoken, here's a free gift, I want to kill you, in response. Amazing. Herod indeed will fight to save his kingdom by horrifically murdering kids to and under. It will all be for naught because our God, our King, scatters the proud and topples the mighty from their thrones. Meanwhile, instead of King Herod, it is a poor carpenter named Joseph and a humble, obedient young girl named Mary who are the lowly ones exalted by the King of Kings' entrance into the world. The father who comes to make us family comes into a family, a modest, humble family. Friends, King Jesus still does this today. He scatters the proud, and he makes us family by his humility. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 11, Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, if, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are citizens and saints in a kingdom with a king. And this kingdom will endure long past the ages. The angel told Mary earlier in this chapter of Luke, chapter 1, that Jesus will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and to end of his kingdom there will be no end. The kingdom was inaugurated by the birth of our Lord and Savior, who was born king. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is near in his ministry time and time again, and it's been present and will be present for ages to come, and his existence will forever scatter the proud, and will ultimately topple the mighty from their thrones, but blessed are the meek and lowly, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
friends, to be part of this kingdom, to be part of the gift that is for the world, to move forward reflecting our Lord and Savior with humility and service to bring life, love, joy, peace, happiness, salvation, and warmth to the darkness that does not comprehend the light. This kingdom is not ruled by a proud, angry king who kills babies, who doesn't, and he doesn't know in case one of them among them might grow up and be king, and even miss it in the process. Something about kings and kingdoms, though. There, I don't know about you, but this imagery that, that comes with kingdom, majesty, reverence, and awe, but sometimes, for me, that brings about feelings of coldness, and separation, right? As in there's a king and the mighty leader and that one reserved for our worship and then there's the rest of us. That there's pomp and circumstance and we're merely spectators lining up on the road and aching for the sight of our king. There's, it's distant. There's him and us. That's the imagery I can personally feel sometimes, but not our king, though, friends. Our king is inviting us to an eternity of Christmas Eve memories. Our king is one who is personable and our father. Our king doesn't have a legion of bodyguards around him, but instead he comes in vulnerable flesh. Can you get any more personable than becoming us? I don't know if you know this, but God was not born human. We're getting into the deity of Christ, but Christ is forever existing, so he wasn't born, as in the idea of him not existing and then suddenly existing. That's not correct. However, he did have a moment where he took on a foreign nature to him. He took on flesh. We just read that in Philippians, and he did that for us. He's personable, and he's preparing an eternity of Christmas Eve for us. I love the imagery the Bible uses in many places, and that Mary is is using here, she says in verse 53, what we're studying, He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. We need to know that the point of this passage here is not to exclude rich people, but it is to draw out from every single person, no matter their monetary state, if they know that they are hungry or not. Every single person on planet Earth is starving. And for the person who knows their hunger and comes to God and says, I hunger, for the person who is aware of that, they are satisfied with good things. But for those who are too self-sufficient to ever deal with their maker, for those who say, I'm good, I don't need anything, I'm not hungry, I've gotten along fine without God, indeed, they will be sent away as they are empty. But if it's your desire to have nothing from God, having nothing from Him, you will end up. Knowing this, He's already supplying the air you breathe. He's already giving blood and life to your brain that you have and you are currently enjoying living every moment in rebellion, rejection and arrogance and pride and ignorance about the very God who would give you all the faculties to do such things. I also love Thanksgiving. I think it's probably right up there with Christmas contending for the best holiday in my heart because I know you're so 
concerned about my superb judgment in these matters. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sitting with a good friend recently, and they tell me, yeah, we think we're going to eat out next year for Thanksgiving. It's just too much work, hours of prep for a 15 to 20 minute meal, and then sure, good leftovers afterwards. We'll just eat out. Call me a food snob, but nothing beats homemade Thanksgiving. I'm sure it's in the Bible somewhere. Even the finest of restaurants. You can't beat homemade food with family. Now I have 100% no room to talk because I cooked nothing for it. Maybe I should cook next year. Even so, though, if you're in the habit of choosing McDonald's over homemade burgers, or choosing Denny's or whatever home over homemade Thanksgiving, or choosing DiGiorno's pizza over homemade pizza, whatever. The idea is that I believe there are people walking around with sugared, sugared sodas and greasy burgers in their systems, and their bodies are showing the evidences of it, and they're saying to King Jesus, I don't want your homemade stuff. You think I'm just speaking out of my gluttony, but this is a biblical image here. God is provide, preparing a table is he not? Revelation 19.9 says we're being invited to a marriage supper of the Lamb. Luke 13.29 talks about people coming from all over the place to recline and feast at the table with God and his people. The reason I like Thanksgiving and Christmas so much, again, is sure, good food, but better, people around the table, right? It's a picture of heaven in my mind, people gathering together to eat at the table what Jesus has planned for eternity. And so for God to satisfy the hungry with good things but send the rich away empty reminds me of a parable in Luke 14, 15 through 24. I highly encourage you to read it later. You have homework. Luke 14, 15 to 24. But in it, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who invites many people to a banquet. And one by one, people have excuses, whether it be a new field they bought and they want to look at, Newly purchased oxen to try. Someone says they just got married and none of the invited people come. So Jesus says, go out to anybody. I don't care who they are, what they did, just as long as they come. How sad that those invited never come. Because what God has at the banquet is the finest of foods, good things to satisfy. See, our God is a king with a kingdom, but he's also a father setting the table for an eternity of Christmas Eve. It's been his plan all along. That's how Mary kind of finishes her song. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Our God is, our, is a father and our God is a king. Abraham means father of many nations, and that to me says it all right there. From the get-go, God was seeking to procure not just a kingdom of servants and subjects, but a kingdom of friends, a kingdom of sons and daughters. Back in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, where it all starts with Abram, we hear God say to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. 
and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. If you've read through Genesis, this first declaration to Abram continues on in Abram's life. Some of you know the story of Genesis 22. God tests him and says, come out, Abram, and give your only son to me as a sacrifice. And we know it's a, a foreshadow of Jesus as Abram takes his son Isaac. Isaac carries the very wood for his sacrifice, just like Jesus carries his own cross. They're on the exact same mountain where Jesus was crucified. And even as Jesus is with two other men, so two servants are with Abram and Isaac. But Isaac, unlike Jesus, is not to be sacrificed. He was never to be sacrificed, but rather, as Jesus is for us, a substitute is given at the final moment, and a ram is caught in the thicket. And that faith, that willingness on part of Abram to know to do what God has asked him to do, brings about this similar declaration in Genesis 22, where God says, by myself I have sworn, there it is again, by myself, God is acting alone again. This is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and not withheld your only son. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth, that's us, we're in the Bible, will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. From the get-go, God was out for, quote, all the peoples of the earth. I want you also to notice that at the inception of Israel was the first Gentile. Abraham is a Gentile who became Jewish. And at Israel's inception, it was always meant to be a blessing for the nations, a blessing for all people. Do you understand that? Paul makes it very clear in the book of Galatians. He's going to thread the needle of informing what Mary is saying, getting us from the, the passages in Genesis to what Mary is singing. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Paul says, Just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. That's the language of family. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles, that's anybody else that's not Jewish, by faith, and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. I believe all of Galatians 3 is worth your reading, so now you have more homework. So Galatians 3 and Luke 14, 15-24. But at the very end of Galatians 3, we get to our point in verses 26-29. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ like a garment... There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Paul says that the promises made to Abraham and to his offspring, that's us, are realized in Christ. And through Christ, you and I are made to be Abraham's sons, recipients, and heirs. So my point is, is when Mary sings that Israel is helped, Mary is singing that you and I have been helped. 
Because by Paul's own words here, we are Israel. We are heirs. We are Abraham's sons through Christ. Do you hear that? You and I are invited to the table. You and I are satisfied with good things in Christ, and we are lifted up in Christ and part of his kingdom. So, when Christ was given to Mary, he was given as a gift to the world for each of us. That's what the angels tell the shepherds on the night Jesus is born. You know the passage in the same region. Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior who is Messiah the Lord has been born for you in the city of David. And as I said earlier, the paradox. The interesting thing for me personally is that when this gift is proclaimed, some people respond like King Herod. The irony here is here is King Herod, supposedly king of the Jews of his time, king of the very people Jesus was born into, and Herod responds violently. Herod responds disturbed, and Herod basically says there's not enough room for two kings of the Jews, so I'll do whatever I can kill this one so-called king. Meanwhile, Gentiles, pagan wise men, have just wandered across the desert to worship a king of what would be in their minds of a foreign people, the Jews. But these Gentile wise men represent the reality of what Paul has said, that we are sons and heirs by faith in the same family of Abraham. Through Christ, we have a father adopting us into his family. I ask you this, who is King Jesus to you? Some of you, I wonder if you flinch hearing the king with the kingdom and one day all knees bowing, all tongues confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. And like Herod, you feel your own little personal throne threatened. And maybe you don't like the pomp and the circumstance and the bowing and the distance and feeling like a spectator and we're just all supposed to be tight-lipped, uptight, quiet, submissive subjects who don't squeak because we're little puny peasants with no rights. I wonder if you feel threatened. I don't want anyone to rule over me. Well, then you haven't met our king. You haven't really met our king. Our king is a father who's setting up a table for eternity. He's got an eternity of Christmas Eves lined up in the queue. He's coming as a king with a kingdom who doesn't demand praise as a hostile Herod but is worthy of our praise because he's come born out of love, not force. He's come to walk among us and suffer before us, not trample us over and inflict us with punishment. Why do you need this great gift that Mary is singing about? Because if you love our king, and our king is so lovable, because he's perfect and just and righteous and he will right all wrongs and pure and he's holy. I can't speak for each of you, so I'll just speak for myself. All it takes is one look in the mirror, one recollection of my thoughts, one recollection of my deeds to say I don't measure up. I can't be in community with him. I'm not perfect. I can't say that I'm always righteous. I can't say that my motives are always pure. I can't say that I'm holy. But here's what I love about King Jesus. King Jesus, I told you, is likened to a father who's preparing a table. And back in Luke 14, where you have homework, is this interesting little verse. 
verses 13 through 14, Jesus is telling a parable. When you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame, or blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And I feel like Jesus is telling people to reflect himself here. Because this is what Jesus has done. He's prepared a banquet and he's invited people to it who can't pay him back ever. He's filled the hungry with good things. Friends, before Jesus, I'm hungry. I don't measure up. Before a holy, good, pure, and perfect God, I'm hungry. I desire his presence, but I'm not ever going to get it on my own merit because I don't have any merit. I have sin. I have impure motives, and just one drop of poison contaminates pure water. And so glory be to God, thanks be to God, that born out of his love solely, that he shows up pure living water. And he says, I have become like you to take away your sins. Jesus is the greater Isaac offered by his father for a sacrifice, and like the ram caught in the thicket, substituted Isaac. So Jesus substitutes himself for the punishment we deserve. And now we, by faith in him and what he has done, Hebrews 9, 26-28 says it best, but now he, that is King Jesus, has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment... So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Our king is coming back as a father to take everyone who can't pay him back to the banquet, to the Christmas Eves of eternity. And every single person is invited. No matter what you've done, who you've wronged, what you thought, the lame, the blind, the mute, the, the deaf, the guiltiest of offenders. You are citizen, saint, friend, brother, sister, son, or daughter of the king in his kingdom. For those of us saved, let us be reminded today we're family. Yes, we're in a kingdom, and yes, we have a king, but that king has said to us, I do not call you slaves anymore. Because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. That's a verse a Quaker could like. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I can find rest in that. I can find that in the middle of my sins, my trials, my feelings of inadequacy because I cannot pay him back. I can rest in the fact that I'm not living in a kingdom where the king is out to snatch me up and put me in a dungeon on the first sign of sin. But a king who has borne the punishment of my sins and tells me, I love you, son. I'm patient with you. I'm your dad who loves you. We'll get through this together. That's something worth singing about. Let's remember this together. Say this with me. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich is sent away empty. One more time. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Let's pray.
Father, the end of your word tells us that you're preparing a new heaven and a new earth for us. So we know that there is some resemblance. We know that you have given us pictures and symbols in your word of who you are, many things, all things in creation, perfectly in their perfect state reflect you. And Father, for me, I think about times around the table as a child and the cherished memories I have. But Father, your word seems to demonstrate to us that for eternity you have that plan for us. You're inviting us to a table. Father, for anybody in this room who has not accepted you as Lord and Savior, would they desire the better food? Would they desire your son Jesus to be saved from sin and to trust in you to start living life for you and not for themselves? Because that's what we're made for. Father, we thank you for the banquet you're preparing. We pray that your spirit and the words of Jude would keep us blameless and pure. In the words of Peter, that you would keep us and protect us by your spirit and guard us by faith. Father, we pray that as we get together for many meals this time of year, that you would use that to remind us each and every time, this is what I have to look forward to, and my dad, Jesus, will be at the table. And every single brother and sister in Christ who has gone before me in all of the ages will be gathered around this table. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the times of joy that we look forward to throughout the year whenever we gather around tables and fellowship as brothers and sisters. Thank you for considering us friends and family and not for considering us slaves and subjects. We love you and we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.